Well, hello there. I think you might want to pull up a chair. Let me get things adjusted here. I always think having a cup of coffee is such a good idea, but then I don't quite know what to do, and this microphone picks up everything, so let me see. There we go. Okay, now, <laughs> this is a this is going to be a wild one today, so buckle up. Um, just randomly, well, today I'm going to be talking about, um, you know, I, I've said these people are one-trick ponies for years, okay? And I will be continuing to explore the saga with them using um, radiation and uh, weapons. I think what's going on is that they figured out how to use this form of radiation, um, uranium, and um, there was this deal years ago that Clinton was accused of selling U.S. U.S. uranium to the Russians, and they got caught. Anyway, so not the subject for today, but what's interesting is they've been using this radiation to put on tips of um, tips of weapons to make them more penetrative and to quite a deadly degree, I might say. Um, and so before I get into that part of the horror story here, and what's interesting and the reason I'm talking about U.S. military and radiation is because I think that Japan was using these same tipped kind of um, uranium tipped things to set off Japan because I think Japan was used as like a photo opportunity to then say that it was a nuclear attack, right? Because I've been saying all along that they're tipping these weapons with something, right? And this is what it looks like it is. So, okay. I don't know why. <laughs> if I could explain it, I would. But I was looking at the um, U.S. Um, symbol, you know, the symbols on the money and all that, and I kept thinking that the one symbol between one generation and the other, the bird looked different, okay, in <laughs> my hunt for odd details, um, because I was looking at U.S. money from different eras, and one bird designed in that logo looked different than the other bird, okay, the other bird being the eagle. So, I went hunting for birds, interestingly enough, and um, there's all this talk about them being Phoenicians, and, you know, we do speak a phonetical language, right? And um, there's this bird called the phoenix, and you will find the phoenix bird all over the place. They put it atop of buildings. Every, every town will have one of these phoenix birds around, okay? Not just in the city of Phoenix, okay? Because I was thinking... Well, the, the symbolism, this is what I think right now, the symbolism of putting this phoenix bird all around is what they believe in, okay? And phoenix, the bird phoenix, meaning, remember, phoenix goes down in ashes and resurrects. That's what a phoenix is, right? So, I found an interesting thing when I was looking at this phoenix. <laughs> Many Americans and people around the world think that our national bird of the U.S. is an eagle. They are wrong. The symbolic bird you will find on the Great Seal of the United States is actually the mythical bird known as a phoenix. <laughs> Hot damn, right? <laughs> so yeah, and you'll find these phoenixes at the entrances to places like the Vatican City. You know, they're all over, right? The Egyptians associated the phoenix with immortality. 
that makes rings true because um, they must have some strong feelings of immortality and they seem to believe totally it appears to me in the concept of reincarnation but in order to wield their death weapon on the general public they have pretty much everybody convinced that this is all we have right this life is all we have and so you better you better toe the line because you don't want to get death right um, because they had to hide that key thing, just like they hid the key thing about the definition of a psychopath. They, they've hidden some very interesting key things along the path here, right? Um, and I've always called it hiding in plain sight. So yeah, so um, the phoenix was compared to undying Rome, and it appears on the coinage of the late Roman Empire as a symbol of the eternal city. Uh, what cities have a phoenix as their emblem? Atlanta, Portland, and San Francisco have all adopted the phoenix as their emblem. And the name of the modern city of Phoenix in Arizona reminds us of its location on the site of a Native American city. In England, Coventry University has a phoenix as its emblem, and the city's coat of arms also includes a phoenix. So here's where I got interesting about this phoenix. You know, is the phoenix being kind of interplay? At one point they had the phoenix definitely designing this logo. That's where I got started on this hunt, right? <laughs> because I noticed, I used to work in design, so I noticed that the bird looked different because the phoenix is like a skinnier version, is my best way, of an eagle, right? Okay, so the Egyptian phoenix was said to be as large as an eagle with brilliant scarlet and gold plumage and a melodious cry. What that means, I don't know. Only, only one phoenix existed at any time, and it was, and it was very long-lived. No ancient authority gave it a lifespan of less than 500 years. So only one phoenix could live at a time, and they have a lifespan of 500 years, okay? At its end approached, the phoenix Excuse me, sorry again. As its end approached, the phoenix fashioned a nest of aromatic boughs and spices, set it on fire, and was consumed in the flames. From the pyre miraculously sprang a new phoenix, which after embalming its father's ashes in an egg of mire, flew with the ashes to Helioposis, city of the sun in Egypt, where it deposited them on the altar in the temple of the Egyptian god of the sun, Re, R-E. A variant of the story made of the dying phoenix, excuse me, so there was also a variant of this story, and it made the dying phoenix fly to Helopolis and emulate itself in the altar fire from which the young phoenix then rose. So basically this phoenix burns itself up after 500 years, right? So then, <laughs> I, you know, on those obliques, which are those penis symbols, right? That's why they're dickless wonders, right? None of these men that we see on the screen, the top ones, have penises, okay? And this is what makes it interesting how they're going after women and children, right? <laughs> Okay, so I looked into the obelisk again to see if I had missed something as far as this bird business and this phoenix business. <laughs> the obelisk of ancient Egypt 
represented Benben, that's all one word, B-E-N, B-E-N, or the original mound upon which the God stood and created the world. For this reason, the obelisk was associated with the Benu bird, that's B-E-N-U bird, the Egyptian predecessor of the Greek phoenix. According to the Egyptian myths, Benu bird's cry would awake would awake creation and set life in motion. The bird symbolized the renewal of each day, but at the same time, it was also a symbol of the wor- world's end, just as its cry would signal the beginning of the creative cycle. The bird would again the bird would sound again to signal its conclusion. Well, well, well. What do we have here? Phoenix statues all over the place. The Phoenix is the official logo. Okay, let me see what else did I have here. The Egyptians associated the Phoenix with immortality, and that symbolism had a widespread appeal in late antiquity. The Phoenix was compared to undying Rome, and it appears on the coinage of the late Roman Empire as a symbol of the eternal city. So those are words, if you want to explore further, that you're looking for. You're looking for eternal city, Roman Empire. It was also widely interpreted as an allegory of resurrection and life after death, ideas that also appealed to emergent Christianity. In Islamic mythology, the phoenix was identified with the Anoa, A-N-O-A, a huge, mysterious bird, and it says probably a heron, H-E-R-O-N, that was originally created by God with all perf- perfections, but thereafter became a plague and was killed. Okay, so what is it? So, the first bird is immortality and all that. But the Islamic one identifies with this one created by God with all perfections, but later became a plague and was killed. Huh, okay. Okay, well, that's all I know about this bird nonsense for right now. So let's get down to this other business. This is a matter of them using something that they already had existing, right? This radioactivity. Okay, what we're talking about in simple terms, okay, I didn't play any clips or anything to explain this stuff because it is head-spinning stuff until you kind of understand the simple elements, okay? Basically, they're using this thing called depleted uranium, and what they're doing is they found that it increases the lethal ability of these dart-like items, dart-like missiles to pierce um, tanks and armor and things like that, making them more deadly. What the aftermath of all of this is a, they're creating a radioactive world, right? So, you know, this this, this part just still gets to me because um, I found that they've been doing some looking into it in Iraq and places. It first got started in Iraq, but um, Basically, what they're doing is they weren't killing people fast enough, so they figured out a way to put uranium, depleted uranium, on the tips of these things. Now, I wasn't in any of these military meetings, okay? I'm just using basic logic and all of my work I've looked into with this 
uh, radiation in the uranium business. So, um, so, uh, so there's not much being talked about, okay, and I will explain to you why, okay. Um, here's what's interesting, and this is the simplest form to explain this. Depleted uranium, also known as DU, okay, has 60% of the radioactivity of natural uranium, hence the word depleted, and since it is a heavy metal, it has the same chemical toxicity as natural uranium. So, the, another thing I found that more than 5,000 rounds of depleted uranium, or DU, ammunition, were used in two attacks on Islamic State oil tankers in eastern Syria, the U.S. military has confirmed. They're not confirming very much of this stuff, right? Kind of like the big, big out in the open secret. So, um, so what you're looking for is this. It's called uranium-238, otherwise known as depleted uranium, or DU. It is one of the biggest, it says pretty stable, pretty stable, right, atoms that strong nuclear force can manage. Now, you'll have to, <laughs> after I go through today's show, you will have to decide for yourself, can any of this stuff be managed, right? Okay. So... First deployed on a large scale during the Gulf War, the U.S. military uses depleted uranium, DU, for tank armor and some bullets due to its high density, helping it to penetrate enemy armored vehicles. And I will just try to say this once. It also puts all of these soldiers at risk. It also blows back in their own faces. I mean, people leading these troops are also getting... Exp I, I got to stop on that one. But yeah, it just is incredible to me the lethal ways that they're going after what they perceive as the enemy, right? Like poor people in Iraq and stuff. Um, and the, the, the absolute destruction they're leaving behind is like, what is, <laughs> what is the plan for this planet, right? Okay, so I'll get off of that one and get back here. Okay, so... The U.S. military uses depleted uranium for tank armor and some bullets due to its high density. DU is a byproduct of the uranium-U enrichment process where the ratio of natural U isotopes from the Earth's crust is enriched with higher energy U isotopes to produce U suitability for use in nuclear reactors. The U, which is the uranium, it, U is just the code word for it, okay? The U remaining is depleted of about 40% of its radioactivity, but this is the trick part, but retains the same chemical toxicity. At first, it didn't sound quite as bad, right? Um, and, and I got this what, that I just read to you from the um, U.S. military uh, VA government website, okay? So they're here, they're admitting that it was first deployed on a large scale, probably because they were doing it on smaller scales, but I don't want to over-speculate, okay? And then on the website was this 
page and it said how veterans may have been i'm trying to present their side because to be fair i want to show you what they're thinking about this first before i launch into, <laughs> into what i find interesting so so how veterans may have exposed some Gulf War, Bosnia, Bosnia, excuse me, Operations Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraq Freedom, and Operation New Dawn veterans may have been exposed to DU when they were on in or near vehicles hit with friendly fire, entering or near burning vehicles, near fires involving DU munitions, or salvaging damaged vehicles. So what this means is uh, friendly fire, okay? So what this means is if another U.S. military tank or something hit yours, that's called friendly fire, okay? So interesting how they're wording this stuff, right? Um, when a pro projectile made of DU penetrates a vehicle, small particles of DU can be formed and breathed in or swallowed by service members in the struck vehicle. Small DU fragments can also scatter and become embedded in muscle and soft tissue. The next one was titled, Health Problems Associated with Depleted Uranium. DU is a potential health hazard if it enters the body, such as through embedded fragments, contaminated wounds, and inhalation or ingestion. This is because used radiation, while of high energy, penetrates poorly through tissues in the body. Simply riding in a vehicle with DU weapons or DU shielding will not expose a service member to significant amounts of DU or external radiation. The potential for health effects from internal exposure is related to the amount of DU that enters a person's body. Inhaled DU particles are likely clean from the lungs over several years. Huh. DU fragments may retain, remain for many years. Older studies, older studies in U manufacturing workers show high exposures to U may especially affect the kidneys. To date, in a group of veterans exposed to DU in friendly fire events, there have been no health impact to the kidney noted. However, recent research shows there may be an association between elevated urine uranium in these veterans and lower bone mineral dense bone mineral bone mineral density. The bone mineral density results require further study to determine if they persist over time and researchers and clinicians clinicians continue to monitor the health of these veterans. Well, does that sound vague enough to you? So anyway, so let's get to the other stuff. And I, I didn't bring up the article about the, there was a big deal, the Clinton, I'm just going from memory here, okay? So many crimes, so little time. In the 90s, I think it was, 
the Clinton Foundation, you know, they have that Clinton Foundation, they were caught taking money from something having to do with uranium. And what the deal was, and I'm just remembering, okay, what the deal was, was that the U.S., Clinton wanted to make it possible for the U.S. to sell its uranium supplies to the Russians, okay? And I believe that deal took place, which at that point made me highly suspicious of all of them because why would you sell your so-called biggest enemy your uranium, right? (laughs) They all have a tell. You just have to keep watching, okay? So anyhow, so yeah, so that would have been like in the 90s, right? And then we had Iraq, right? Iraq. Iraq was... 2003 so yeah right after this uranium deal uh, yeah they're doing more testing right so anyway so and let's not forget that they got caught testing on my website psychopath in your life do on look on the tab called show notes and those radiation experiments on u.s citizens they got caught doing and then they um well, they got caught doing those, and then Bill Clinton, who seemed to have apologized for a lot of stuff, he apologized for giving black men syphilis, he apologized for a lot of stuff. Well, right after Bill Clinton apologized, what did they do? Well, they put smart boxes, smart meters on our homes, right? So <laughs> there's always a cause and effect. So, yeah, so. Okay, so let me get back here. So because of this, and because I've been on the hunt to try to find any possible studies being done, right, um, I found this piece from 2019. The title was, Iraqi children born near U.S. military base show elevated risks of serious congenital deformities, study finds. The war has spread so much radiation here that unless it is cleaned up, generations of Iraqis will continue to be affected. The USA this is just me. The USA military is a very dangerous person to have in your life, now wouldn't you say? Okay. Okay, let me go on to read this article. It was from November twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. More than a decade and a half after the two thousand and three and we're right now in 2023, so that was 20 years ago, U.S. invasion of Iraq, a new study found that babies are being born today with gruesome birth defects connected to the ongoing American military presence there. The report issued by a team of independent medical researchers and published, you can find it if you just take a note of this, in the journal Environmental Pollution, examined congenital anomalies recorded in Iraqi babies born near Talli Air Base, a base operated by the U.S.-led Foreign Military Coalition. According to the study, babies showing severe birth defects, including neurological problems, congenital heart disease, and paralyzed or missing limbs, also had corresponding elevated levels of radioactive compound known as thorium in their bodies. And that is spelled T-H-O-R-I-U-N. Remember those babies? They were, remember those pills that were giving babies all this kind of stuff? Thoracium or thermaldehyde babies? Can't remember that. Anyway, I'll look that later. But Okay. Doctors are regularly encountering, encountering, 
anomalies in babies that are so gruesome they cannot even find precedence for them. We collect, I'm reading from them, we collected hair samples, baby's teeth, and bone marrow from subjects living in proximity to the base, said this person, I can't even pronounce her name, I'm very sorry about that, um, one of the study's leading researchers. In all three tissues, we see the same trend. Higher levels of thorium, T-H-O-R-I-U-M. This person has also authored studies on the radioactive footprint of the U.S. military presence in Iraq for years. Good for them. Says that the new findings contribute to a growing body of evidence about the serious long-term health impact of U.S. military operations on Iraqi civilians. The closer you live to a U.S. military base in Iraq, she said, the higher the thorium in your body and the more likely you are to suffer serious congenital deformities and birth defects. The new study piles onto a growing wealth of knowledge about severe ill effects of the U.S. military on the environments in which it operates. Now, growing wealth of knowledge makes it sound like there's a lot of knowledge, but no, there is not a lot of knowledge, but people are starting to get wise to the polluting. <laughs> it's The U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the entire world, okay? You'll never see the you know, fake <laughs> green warriors talk about this stuff, so, okay. All industrialized military activity is bad for ecological systems, but the U.S. and its enormous military engaged in activity, activities spanning the globe has a particular large environmental footprint. Not only does the U.S. military lead the world in carbon output, but its prodigious presence around the globe leaves a toxic trail of chemicals that local communities have to deal with, from so-called burn pits on bases releasing poisonous smoke to the radiation of depleted uranium rounds mutating the DNA of nearby populations. The suffering of Iraqis has been particularly acute. The results of the new study added to a laundry list of negative impacts of the U.S.'s long war there to the long-term health of the country's population. Previous studies, including some contributed by a team led by this person, have pointed to elevated rates of cancer, miscarriages, and radiological poisoning in places like Fallujah, where the U.S. military carried out major assaults during its occupation of the country. The study published in Environmental Pollution, is what you're looking for, was conducted by a team of independent Iraqi and American researchers in Iraq during the summer and fall of 2016. They analyzed 19 babies born with serious birth defects at a maternity hospital. Oh my God. I never had my phone on and I just charged it. <laughs> Take that off. Okay, wait a second. I've never hooked my phone up to Wi-Fi or anything tricky, so I typically don't have it on. So, okay, so, um, 
Doctors are regularly encountering anomalies in babies that are so gruesome. Yeah, okay. Um, they went on to say, the war has spread so much radiation here that unless it is cleaned up, generations of Iraqis will continue to be affected. And I had another thing here. Um, this was from, um, these are all from the, this is from 2019, okay, and we're now in 2023, so it wasn't far ago. Some of these negative health effects of the American war in Iraq can be put down to U.S. forces' frequent, frequent use of munitions containing depleted uranium. Depleted uranium, a byproduct of the enriched uranium used to power nuclear reactors, makes bullets and shells more effective in destroying armored vehicles, owing to its extreme density but it has been acknowledged to be hazardous to the environment and the long-term health of people living in places where the munitions are used. Uranium and thorium were the main focus of this study, said the authors. Epidemiology evidence is consistent with an increased risk of congenital anomalies in the offspring of persons exposed to uranium and its depleted forms. In other words, the researchers found that the more you were around these American weapons, the more likely you were to bear children with deformities and other health problems. Well, wasn't I just reading at the beginning of this that the U.S. military said this wasn't dangerous? Huh, funny, huh? And I got that thing that I read about them saying it wasn't dangerous off of the um, veterans' website, U.S. government veterans' website. Okay, um, in response, and this was 2019, in response to an outcry over its effects, <clears throat> the U.S. military pledged to not use depleted uranium rounds in its bombing campaigns against the Islamic State group in Iraq and Syria, but despite this pledge, a 2017 investigation by the independent research group, Anti-Wars and Foreign Policy Magazine, their name is called Anti-Wars and Foreign Policy Magazine, found that the military had continued to regularly use rounds containing the toxic... Imagine that! The U.S. military lied! Can you believe this, kids? Can you believe they lied? I just, I'm having a hard time believing this. They're lying to their soldiers. They're lying to the world. When do the lies stop? When do they stop? Make it stop. Okay. These depleted uranium munitions are almost the, are among the causes of hazards, not only to the civilians in the foreign lands where the U.S. fights its wars, but also to American service members who took part in these conflicts. The chronic illnesses suffered by U.S. soldiers during the 1991 war in Iraq, often from exposure to uranium munitions and other toxic chemicals, have already been categorized as a condition known as Gulf War Syndrome. Gulf War Syndrome. Go looky-looky, you'll find a lot of information there. The U.S. government has been less interested has been less interested into the effects of the American military's chemical footprint on Iraqis. 
the use of burn pits, toxic open-air fires used to dispose military waste, along with other contaminants, has had an lasting impact on the health and current and future Iraqi generations. Researchers concluding the latest study said that a broader study is needed to get definite results about these health impacts. The images of babies born with defects at the hospital where the study was conducted is called Bent, B-I-N-T, Al, A-L, space, H-U-A, Maternity Hospital, about 10 kilometers from Tali, T-A-L-L-I-L, Air Base. Okay, if you just type in some of these words, you will find a world of information, okay? Are gruesome and harrowing. They said, but without an effort by U.S. military to clean up its radioactive footprint, babies will continue to be born with deformities. And they closed it with, the radioactive footprint of the military could be cleaned up if we had officials who wanted to do so. Unfortunately, even research into the problem of Iraqi birth defects has to be done by independent toxologists because the U.S. military and other institutions are not even interested in this issue. Well, I sure applaud their efforts. Um, and I have another thing here. This is about... Um, The Germans challenged U.S. and U.K. who denied over-depleted I was looking to see what they were doing in Afghanistan. I found this. Um, what happened was was that um, there was this military man. You see, they always had to get caught, right? And I'm just going to go over the ones they got blatantly caught at because who knows? This, this could go on for... If I had a team of research assistants, this, this could go on forever. I'm just trying to point out... If you have a military base anywhere near you, dig a little deeper, okay? Okay, so, um, when ha a military manual that was handed over to German campaigners has reignited allegations that the U.S. used DU, depleted uranium, ammunition in Afghanistan. If true, it runs counter to repeated assurances given by the U.S. military that no DU was used. War tactics are developed without any consideration for the environment, says a manager in the Middle East Immigration and Refugee Alliance. Such is the case for depleted uranium, a byproduct of natural uranium enrichment. The U.S. and other militaries used depleted uranium to make ammunition and tank armor. Depleted uranium is very dense, so it can be easily penetrated. And also, here's always this point, right? It is fairly inexpensive, which means that countries can purchase and use large quantities without investing a lot of money. Kind of funny that, you know, right around this time, what was it, the 90s? I'll have to look this up later, but the Clintons were caught selling uranium to the Russians and now it's showing up in all these war fields and stuff. <laughs> I'm sure there's some connection there, but so little time, so much crime. Um, okay, I'm reading from this article now. 
It said, however, we should not passively accept these justifications for using depleted uranium. It can pose extremely harmful environment and health risks. Yes, I think we talked about that already here. Um, so um, they go on to all these things about going forward. We've got to stop all this. Well, I don't know. You, you, can, you can do you. If, you. if you think you can get in front of these people and stop all this, well, let me know how it turns out, okay? Okay. Um, and then this is from their wiki page. It said, depleted uranium and public health in the Middle East. Depleted uranium, or DU, was used during major conflicts in past decades, including the Balkans and the First and Second Gulf Wars. The United States and United Kingdom both used depleted uranium during the First Gulf War, but the United States used relatively more. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, Estimates vary, with some sources saying that around 300 tons of depleted uranium were used during the conflict. And that would be the Gulf War you're looking for, okay? Shockingly, around 1,000 to 2,000, well, they said 300, okay? And then they went on to say, shockingly, 1,000 to 2,000 tons were used in the second Gulf War in 2000. So, first Gulf War, they used 300 tons. Second Gulf War, that wasn't killing enough, so they, 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 they increased it to 1,000 to 2,000 tons, okay? A conflict which only lasted about three weeks. See, this is where, and I'm just guessing here, okay? I've, I've never been, I, I was raised on military bases, but I've never been a military member, okay? I would kind of start to guess here, just by these dates and stuff, the Gulf Wars being 2003, you know, all that uranium got transferred to Russia in the 19... Uh, 1990s uh, these conflicts only lasted a few days uh, were the first and second Gulf Wars a um, on-site staging and first real-time use of these things during military conflict that would be my guess okay <laughs> that would be my guess okay um, depleted uranium may put them I'm still reading from this thing about the um, Gulf Wars, which I'm now highly suspicious of. Okay, so, um, yeah, why they go from first Gulf War with 300 tons, second Gulf War 1,000 to 2,000 tons? I think that the Gulf War was a staging to use this stuff on real life human people. People have a hard time with this, this, this thing. They're like, no, the government wouldn't murder its own people. Well, I don't know. I don't know. You have to think for yourself. I think that they're just nothing but a murdering machine, if you ask me, but hey, that's just me. Okay, um, when ammunition made from depleted uranium strikes a target, the uranium turns into dust that it is inhaled by soldiers near the explosion site. The wind then carries dust to surrounding areas, polluting local water and agriculture. Pieces of old armor and ammunition also pose a threat, particularly to local children playing on tanks and other military hardware made from depleted uranium. The kids were playing on the tanks, and they were collecting the bullets, said this associate professor. Um, this should not cut... For some of the people, these bullets stayed in their houses for years. Well, yeah, so, wow. So the kids brought these 
found these bullets in these tanks and brought them home. Um, so, um, moreover, some young children may be exposed to depleted uranium through contaminated soil in former conflict zones. The depleted uranium left over from Gulf of Wars should be a cause for concern. Although it is only 60% as radioactive as natural uranium, depleted uranium is still chemically and radiologically toxic. Unfortunately, it has been difficult for epidemiologists to determine whether there is a clear link between depleted uranium exposure and health outcomes among pop local population. I start, it has been difficult. Scholars are not always able to untangle possible confounding variables to determine the true effects of depleted uranium on common health. In one paper, scholars analyzed existing data on depleted uranium in the Middle East but they could not determine whether different amounts of depleted uranium are associated with the health of local communities. This is true for other studies as well. Some researchers who studied existing data on depleted uranium deployed in the Balkans concluded that there is still not enough evidence to establish a link between the material and local health well, to them, I would say, look a little harder, kids. Look a little harder. <laughs> yeah, what you do is, if you're going to conduct, uh, you, you get people to agree with you on your side, right? So then you focus on those scientists who think, oh, this is just garbage, right? But let me see what the who has to say. Who are you going to call? Okay. There remains a strong possibility, possibility, that depleted uranium has a negative consequence on civilians. After all, depleted uranium is carcinogenic and there is evidence to suggest that it may also impact hormones. <laughs> a paper from the World Health Organization, who are you going to call, reports that someone who inhales small uranium particles may experience lung damage or lung cancer due to radiation. Depleted uranium may also lead to poor kidney functioning. And that's all they had to say, right? Although the research process is difficult, scholars have been working to see if there is a link between depleted uranium and community health near conflict zones. And this researcher cites studies showing that children's leukemia cases increased by 60% between 1990 and 1997, and that birth defects tripled between 1990 and 1998 in Basra, Iraq. Basra experienced a stage of U.S. bombings Basra, B-A-S-R-A, Iraq, the town, experienced a stage of U.S. bombings in response to the 1990 invasion of Kuwait. They suggested that depleted uranium used during such conflicts is responsible for the rise in cancer and birth defects in the area. 
While these studies have their limitations, they give compelling reasons to think critically about the potential effects of depleted uranium. In the past, I'm still quoting from them, leaders did not pay the necessary amount of attention to the risk of depleted uranium. No, I would have to say this is the plan, not the bug in the system, okay? Documents suggest that the United States may have known about the potential consequences of depleted uranium during conflicts of which it was used. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, published a 1991 report indicating that deploying de depleted uranium in the Gulf War could have caused 500,000 cancer deaths. However, the United States still used depleted uranium in the Middle East despite the risk, deeming that its military benefits outweighed the potential civilian impact. This, this callous calculus reflects a common trend in which Western countries justify human rights abuses under the guise of national interest or military necessity. The U.S., the United States, and Great Britain might have used a less toxic substance like tungsten instead of depleted uranium. Still, military leaders selected depleted uranium, perpetuating a long history of imperialism in which Western nations prioritize their own interests over the well-being of local communities. Importantly, depleted uranium did not go unchallenged. In the 1990s, environmental activists and other groups criticized the use of depleted uranium, but the United States continued to deploy it. In 2015, the United States Department of Defense, or DOD, declared that it would no longer use depleted uranium, only to use it for airstrikes in Syria later that year. But how is this possible? In light of evidence suggesting the dangers of depleted uranium, why were countries still allowed to use it? One might think that international treaties, like the Chemical Weapons Convention, should have prohibited its deployment. However, there's always a catch. Further investigation will reveal the opposite. Many of these treaties only ban weapons that have primarily toxic effects, effects or are specifically intended to have toxic effects. But this is not the case for deleted uranium. So they can say if the weapon has primarily toxic effects or specifically intended to have toxic effects, okay? Militaries have used depleted uranium to make to make or destroy armor rather, rather, so, so they use the depleted uranium to make or destroy armor rather than spread toxic chemicals to enemy combatants. For this reason, such treaties have not prevented country, countries from using depleted uranium in military operations. 
However, the absence of a treaty banning depleted uranium is not the only reason that countries like the United States have been able to justify its use. We might also look at the lack of robust research on its health consequences in former conflict zones. Yes, common theme here, right? Lack of research, right? Or the research gets shut down and a bunch of scientists who all think this was swell are the only ones that quote, right? <laughs> okay, this, this was titled, Under-Researched, Under-Regulated. There is still a great deal of debate about whether the depleted uranium used in the Middle East could be responsible for poor health outcomes. For example, one study from the IAEA, that's the atomic group, indicated that the existence of depleted uranium res residues dispersed in the environment does, does not pose a radiological hazard to the population or its affected regions. Another IAEA paper argued that people would not be exposed to significant amounts of depleted uranium through water and food sources and that locals generally, generally do not suffer significant health risks as a result of the substance. The debate over the effects of debate, depleted uranium, or DU as we know it today, right kids, has two main consequences. First, governments like the United States cite studies that minimize these substances' negative effects to avoid blame for human rights abuses. Boy, they got the U.S. as a number, don't they? With this strategy, militaries can use this dangerous material with impunity. Second, without strong evidence to show how that depleted uranium harms citizens, international law may not restrict its use. Consider Article 35 of the Geneva Convention, which governs humani humanitarian treatment in armed conflict. Article 35 contains the principle of distinction. According to this rule, governments must differentiate between military targets and civilians. A country cannot target civilians as, as though they were members of the opposing military. Theoretically, depleted uranium might, might violate the principles of distinction. After all, depleted uranium may spread to civilian populations and harm them as though they were military targets. However, the principle of distinction does not apply in practice. It could only be used to ban depleted uranium if there is a if there is concrete evidence, concrete evidence that depleted uranium harms civilian population. Right now, such evidence does not exist. <clears throat> the principle approximate the principle of portionality, another rule under Article 35, faces a similar problem. The principle states that countries cannot launch attacks that incidentally harm civilians unless the harm imposed is much smaller than the military advantage gain. Like the principle of distinction, proportionality could apply to depleted uranium if we knew more about its effects. 
we cannot compare the military benefits of depleted uranium to its impact on civilians unless we have more evidence about its health effects. Unfortunately, obtaining research on depleted uranium is difficult. Researchers have trouble collecting data because affected areas in the Middle East tend to have a lot of internal migration, poor health care, and malnutrition. Researchers also face political barriers. Governments that use depleted uranium have a vested interest in preventing research that suggests it has a negative effect on human health. For example, the United States, United Kingdom, Israel, and France all opposed a 2001 United Nations resolution to document depleted uranium in war. In another striking example, the IAEA prohibited Iraq from accessing equipment to monitor the impact of deleted uranium on its population. Iraqi officials were not allowed to access the equipment due to concerns of nuclear weapon construction. So I guess they said, oh, we won't give you these tools because we're afraid you're going to make some nuclear weapons out of them. Okay. There's always one way to do this deal, is there? Okay, so what else was I looking at here? Uh, Although, although the United States and Western-dominated institutions prevented research on depleted uranium, the U.S. State Department has partially blamed Iraq for the lack of data saying that there have been no independent studies related to depleted uranium inside Iraq since 1991. Iraq, ha and they went on to say, since this is the U.S. military saying, they're blaming Iraq, okay? And they're saying that there have been no independent studies related to depleted uranium inside Iraq since 1991. This is what they're saying here, okay? Since 1991, Iraq has refused to allow health inspectors to access to assess the alleged impact of deleted, depleted uranium. This quote stands out as an example of how collecting how data collection on depleted uranium, an activity which should be governed by scientific objectivity, has been shaped by the interests of Western nations. Countries that use depleted uranium have often stifled research on depleted uranium while while deflecting blame toward other nations. Per permitting militaries to use this substance without repercussions. Okay, where was I here? Um, let's see how we're doing on time here. It's going to be a long one. I'm going to keep going on this, though, because it's important. Um, yeah, so the U.S. State Department is uh, blaming Iraq, okay? Um it doesn't appear to me that Iraq had anything to do with it because that study I read before was the people in Iraq are trying to scream for justice and saying, hey, look, we got some sick kids here. So, um, yeah. Okay. Um, and went on, this thing went on to say, hypothetically, military leaders could rely on the Geneva Convention to prove that depleted uranium is illegal. 
for example, for instance, they might look into the principles of distinction of proportionality, which I was reading about earlier. However, this might not be the most effective course of action. States that use depleted uranium could respond by arguing that the military advantage of depleted you know, military advantage of depleted uranium are enough to outweigh the negative effects. Even if science shows that depleted uranium is extremely harmful, powerful countries like the United States will likely win a lengthy battle over whether depleted uranium violates the Geneva Convention or other international law. Instead, nations should adopt, well, I'll, I'll read what their hopeful thinking is, okay? Nations should adopt an explicit ban on depleted uranium. That, you, you go look for the depleted uranium they're using in Ukraine right now, okay? Um, they might consider the ban written by the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, okay? So there's a group called International Coalition to Ban uranium weapons. If you want a source of all more details, that would be the place you want to go to, okay? Such a convention sidesteps highly politicized debates about whether depleted uranium violates the Geneva Convention. Unlike the Geneva Convention, the ban would explicitly outlaw the weapon, leaving little room for a debate. In addition to the ban, countries like the United States that have deployed depleted uranium could coordinate with affected communities to clean up as much of the toxic wake as possible. Well, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I don't think any of this is going to happen, but okay. Uh. And then I found this page, and I'll kind of skim through it. It was uh, from the government. It said, Use of Radiation and Military Activities. The following fact sheets, just the facts I'm telling you, explain different military uses of radi radioactive material. Some of these things will be found in other places you visit in your day-to-day -day life. Depleted uranium. Depleted uranium is used for tank armor, armor-piercing bullets, and as weights to balance aircraft. Yeah, they, they actually use this as a weight to balance aircraft. And also, I'm not going to get onto it right now, but um, if you fly a lot, there's a thing called aerotoxicity. You know, air, they say that airplanes have cleaner well no the um there's some oil or some stuff that spews into the cabin that um, pilots are like dropping over from very dangerous to be flying a plane if your pilot's under the influence of aerotoxicity but yeah go look for that I, I can't cover every crime they've done so um so um deleted depleted ur uranium or du as we know it today right kids is both a toxic chemical and radiation health hazards went inside the body. And you're looking for um, U235, your specific, okay, is what you're looking for. Um, naturally occurring uranium is one, one is abundant in nature and contains several forms of uranium called isotopes. And this stuff gets more um, detailed than I'm going to go into right now. If you are of a scientific mind and have a better brain cavity for digesting some of this stuff, I suggest you go at it because there is just a whole lot to this, okay? Um, okay, I pulled up something. Where am I here? The Department of Defense. Um, the Department of Defense monitors soldiers who have or may have been exposed to DU. 
And remember recently they had that huge fight about they didn't want to pay the soldiers who were affected by um, burn pits. You remember that? I just, I just caught that one out of the kind of my eye. But yeah, there's been a case recently you might look up for U.S. soldiers in burn pits because in all these countries they just burn up all this stuff and it flies into the air and soldiers were impacted. So, And there was a big fight because they, they honestly did not want to pay these soldiers. How, how are they getting away with it? Well, here again, because no studies, right? So if you can't produce a study saying that these DUs give you cancer from the radioactivity and the radiation, right? If you can't produce that study, then they don't have to pay you the benefits. So there, there's a lot of reasons to not do studies. <laughs> and unfortunately, everybody has been so tricked that anything the government says, people have this underlying feeling that it must be true, right? Okay, um, so anyway, so you can go over to the, the DOD. They have a lot about radiation, and I'm not going to get all into that, but okay. Um, there's also uh, nuclear submarines um, are big on the radiation thing. Um, they're powered by nuclear reactors, submarines. Some of the submarines and aircraft carriers in the United States fleet are powered by nuclear reactors. So what I would I kind of steer clear of those things. And if you have to work around them, there's a lot of information here to look at. Okay, and this is this is where they started this stuff. Okay, in 1954, the Navy launched the first submarine that used radioactive material as a power source. Its name was a USS Nautilus, N-A-U-T-I-L-I-S, and was the first submarine to travel to the North Pole. <laughs> Pretty funny, huh? The North Pole where Santa is and Saturn. <laughs> Before then, submarines used diesel engines and had to go into port for fuel. Nuclear power allowed submarines to run for about 20 years without needing to refuel. Food supplies became the only limit on a nuclear submarine's time at sea. Since then, similar technologies have been developed to power aircraft carriers. Nuclear submarines and aircraft carriers are, are powered by onboard nuclear reactors. I'll never do that one. <laughs> flying nuclear reactors and people are so worried about those nuclear reactors that are out there on the ground right here we got them flying all around the sky <laughs> okay let me back up here and then i got this from i, I think it was the u.s navy site but anyways <laughs> nuclear submarines and aircraft carriers are powered by onboard nuclear reactors atoms in the nuclear reactor split which releases energy as heat. This heat is used to create high-pressured steam. The steam turns propulsion turbines that provide the power to turn the propeller. Additional turbines also make electricity for the ship. As the steam cools and condenses back to water, the water is directed back through the system and the process starts again. The nuclear reactor compartment is shielded to protect the crew from the radiation released by the reactor and crew access is prohibited during reactor operation. Reactor engineers wear radiation monitors that are checked regularly. 
They follow strict safety procedures, work in shifts, and carefully plan the work to limit radiation exposure. When the nuclear reactors used to power submarines and aircraft carriers are disposed of, the Department of Defense, or DOD, maintains and monitors the radioactive parts. While submarine and aircraft carrier nuclear reactors are no longer being used, the compartments are shipped to the final disposal site on barges. Sounds like some pretty dangerous stuff being shipped around here if you ask me, but I'll continue reading. During shipment, the Coast Guard or the Navy will provide an escort vessel to ensure the security of the barge. The Coast Guard may periodically inspect the barges. The Navy must comply with the Department of Transportation regulations when shipping the reactor compartments. Radiation levels must not exceed DOT limits. That was the Department of Transportation. These limits are in place to protect workers, the public, and the environment while shipping and managing the reactor compartments and components. The Department of Energy, or DOE as we just learned, disposes of some types of contaminated reactor parts from nuclear vessels at the Hanford facility in Washington State. You might consider moving out of Washington State. <laughs> Those contaminated reactor parts are stored in specifically designed waste storage cells. Well, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, if you go look at the Department of Defense, U.S. Navy, and you will find all you want to know about these uh, floating boats. Okay, then they also have these things called nuclear weapons production waste. The creation of nuclear weapons produces a large amount of waste, which is still being managed today. Plut plutonium levels in the environment are very low and pose little risk to most people. When the Cold War ended in the late 1980s, the United States and much of the rest of the world stopped making and testing new nuclear weapons. Since then, the U.S. has focused on maintaining existing warheads and is in the process of disposing of the radioactive waste left behind. And I'll read about their waste program. It's just, it's just it's hard for my brain to calculate that this stuff could actually ever be contained. Okay, but anyway, so, but I'm not a scientist. Maybe I've, maybe I've gotten this all wrong, okay? Maybe they just really do have these smart meters on our houses to help us out, and maybe I'm just the most suspicious person you've ever met. <laughs> okay. Okay, let me see here. Plutonium. Remember all those um, Russians they showed us that, that said that uh, Putin got them with polonium, plutonium or something? I'll have to go back and look at that stuff. And also, another thing I'm going back and looking at, um, when I was going through all of those um, mental wards, um, you know, they had the mental wards set up before the people started arriving in this country, and they had those alarming mental wards in Italy, 
a lot of x-ray equipment was being used in those wards. And after I was reading that thing about East Germany having x-rays and stuff, <clears throat> taking a closer look at those um, mental wards they set up for us, right? Because those places also had x-ray machines, which I didn't really calculate at the time. I, I, I thought, well, x-ray machines, maybe somebody living there broke their leg or something, right? But probably a more devious thing. But Okay. Plutonium and uranium were used to create fuel for nuclear weapons. When nuclear bombs detonate, atoms split and release enormous amounts of energy through a nuclear reaction. Between 1944 and 1988, the United States built special reactors to make about 100 metric tons of plutonium for nuclear weapons. The reactors created the high radioactive plutonium by bombarding uranium fuel rods with neutrons. Each time a uranium atom changed to a plutonium atom, more neutrons were released, causing a chain reaction. The process continued until the majority of the uranium atoms were converted into plutonium thus ending the chain reaction. At this point, the fuel rods are said to be spent, used up, and they were removed from the reactor. And that's where they get this, you know, radiation stuff from reactors. Workers use strong acids to dissolve the plutonium from the fuel rods. This process left behind more than 100 million gallons of hazardous liquid waste. It is called mixed waste because it contains both hazardous chemicals and radioactive materials. The Department of Energy, or DOE, is working to safely clean up and dispose of these nuclear weapon production waste. Workers at nuclear weapons production facilities wore protective clothing. Well, I don't know. Um, I can't believe that. Um, okay, let me continue on here. I, I, I think the whole idea here is these workers were probably highly at risk, right? Because if these kids in uh, Iraq are coming up with massive deformities, and, and I'm not going to speculate, okay? I'm just guessing here because, remember, no studies were being done. So I, I have a hard time believing that based on what we know from our last couple lessons here with understanding what radiation means kids I, I have a hard time believing that anybody handling any of this stuff directly could possibly be safe right um so if you want to look it up look up doe environmental safety and health and they are the ones who protect uh, workers from radiation okay then there was this other section of this little government fault thing it was called um radiation facts after a nuclear explosion debris and soil can mix with radio radiolites this mixture is sent up into the air and falls back to earth it is called fallout and is typically contains hundreds of different radiocytes since the conclusion of the weapon testing in the 1980s radiocytes in the atmosphere have largely decayed away Denotating nuclear weapons above ground sends radioactive materials as high as 50 miles into the atmospheres. Large particles fall to the ground near the explosion site. 
but lighter particles and gases travel into the upper atmosphere. The particles that are swept up into the atmosphere and fall back down to Earth are called fallout. Fallout can circulate around the world for years until it gradually falls down to Earth or is brought back to the surface by precipitation. The path of the fallout depends on wind and weather patterns. Typically, fallout contains hundreds of different <laughs> hundreds of different radiocytes. Some stay in the environment for a long time because they have long half-lives. And I, I can't even understand all this stuff about the Celsius, the iodide. And, uh, but they went on to say that very little radioactivity from weapons testing in the 1950s and 1960s can still be detected. Very little can be detected in the environment now. Okay, very little. Get that straight. Okay. The United States conducted the first above-ground nuclear weapon test in southeast New Mexico on July the 16th, 1945. Between 1945 and 1963, hundreds of above-ground blasts took place around the world. Over time, the number and size of these blasts increased, especially in the late 1950s and early 1960s. After the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963 was signed by the United States, so there was this treaty called Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963, okay? It was signed by the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain. Most above-ground blasts ceased. Gee, call me crazy, but it sounds to me like they're still being used in these wars, right? Since the end of above-ground nuclear weapons testing, the day-to-day -day radiation and air readings from monitoring sites has fallen. For many years, analysis of air samples has shown risk levels far below regulatory limits. In fact, results are now generally below levels that instruments can detect. The EPA maintains a system of radiation monitors throughout the United States. These monitors were originally designed to detect radiocytes that were released after a nuclear weapon detonation. Now the EPA uses this system called RADNET, R-A-D-N-E-T, to look at all to look at background radiation levels at many locations across the United States. You're looking for RADNET, all one word, R-A-D-N-E-T, okay? For more information about the history of RADNET, please visit the Learn More About RADNET webpage. Okay, go, go look at RADNET if you want to know more about what they're admitting to, okay? Even though there is very little fallout that still exists in the government, it is important to remember that fallout can be very dangerous. This section talks about the different ways we can be exposed to radiation. If a nuclear detonation occurs, see, they have all these ways we could be exposed, right? Well, hey, what about those boxes inside of our homes? <laughs> okay, one example is the Federal Radiation Council, okay? Federal Radiation Council. They did a 1962 report. Health Implications of Fallout from Nuclear Weapons Testing through 1961. Okay, so they did a report in 1962. This is one of the reasons why radiation protection professionals work hard to protect people from unnecessary exposure to radiation. 
The radioactive dust that settles on the environment around us is an example of potential external exposure. Radiocytes that, that emit alpha and beta particles would pose a lower external risk because they do not travel very far in the atmosphere and are not as penetrated as more energetic radiation. Huh. But then they go on to say, shielding one of the three principles of radiation protection prevents some external exposure because alpha particles are blocked by the dead skin cells that sit on the surface of our bodies. But here we go. Gamma rays, however, travel much further in the atmosphere and are higher energy rays that could only be blocked by heavy shielding, like a concrete wall or a lead apron. These rays pose a higher external exposure risk. Always look for those gamma rays. Okay. Um, the United States was researching the use of depleted uranium as an armor penetrator. So, uh, when were they doing this? They've been doing that on the M60 tanks. I'm not going to drag you through every one of these because it could get mind-numbing at some point. But yeah, they're, they're using them on tanks right now. Um, the use of depleted uranium as a penetrator has resulted in superior armament for U.S. tankers crossing the battlefield. Nobody knows how long the 1-2 combination of the M256 guns and DU ammunition will continue to overmatch enemy armor, but given DU's superior armor-piercing capability, it's a fairly sure bet DU will arm the next generation of army tanks as well. So, if you're fighting the U.S. military, I'd be kind of cautious because they're using some pretty lethal weapons against other people so okay and just to close this out i had also looked to see what i could find about afghanistan um and i found a report that said um u.s afghan war veterans suffering devastating health conditions due to toxins radiation at the base Toxins and radiations, okay? And this was from 2020, okay? Almost, almost two decades of war in Afghanistan has taken their toll on U.S. servicemen, not only via battles with terrorists, but also due to the military's apparent negligence of adverse environmental conditions at one or more bases and a general lack of information regarding related hazards. The House Subcommittee on National Security has ruled to declassify a significant array of documents from the Department of Defense that suggest that American troops stationed at Camp Stronghold Freedom at the airbase in Uzbekistan between 2001 and 2005 were constantly exposed to several types of environmental hazard hazardous toxins and even radiation and have since been suffering health issues likely connected to the conditions at the base. Like I say, they're one-trick ponies. Radiation is certainly their thing, isn't it? Okay. So, yeah, so they're arguing back and forth about this stuff, and um, that's what happens. People suffer. They argue back and forth. They refuse to pay for their stuff, and how it works. Um, 
there is this, um, I'm gonna, and then there was this article, um, U.S. undercounted number of military bases with cancer linked to contaminated water. See, what they're finding on all these, now, I don't, I'm not saying this for a fact because I have not researched every one of these bases, okay, but it appears to me that there's a lot of allegations going around that U.S. military bases have pretty high cancer risk in the water, in the area, okay? Just, just, just take it from there, okay? So, um, so, they, they've been, there's been allegations that they're kind of hiding some of this cancer linked to some of these bases, right? So, it appears to me, this is this very simple conclusion here, right? Coming up with cancer around these bases, you've got bases in Iraq, babies are being born to form. It would appear to me that being part of the U.S. military is a pretty risky operation, right? Um, especially when they act like nothing, nothing's going wrong. But anyway, so um, so this is this is an interesting article. So I'll read this part here, um, just to give you a perspective of how this is looking, right? The article is titled "U.S. Undercounted Number of Military Bases with Cancer Cancer Linked Contaminated Water," November 2019. According to the testimonies of U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant Paul Widener, the soldiers serving at the base were repeatedly informed about the hazards, but were told they posed no significant risk to them. He added that the base command held no briefing on toxic exposure and did not recommend wearing wearing let alone provide protective equipment for the soldiers the department of defense has not commented on the release of the documents by the committee so far well don't know what to say to you don't know what to say to you um seems like they have some pretty specific patterns here it seems to be that radiation is certainly their thing right and um not doing studies is a pretty key factor here. That's how they've gotten to hold this whole transgender deal by not doing studies. They're not doing studies of these kids that they're amputating and mutilating. Um, the U.S. is now the gold standard for embryos and um, surrogate babies. Um, people fly in from all over the world to get babies in this country. How did it get to be the gold standard? Well, here again, no studies. Like I said before, probably, and I'm only guessing here probably the reason why they have always resisted besides besides they get to rob us a, a, a huge percentage of people in this country go bankrupt from medical bills okay but that aside the robbery part which is always alluring to these people right um the robbery part well that aside um i think if they had national health insurance it would be easier to get caught right because then you could just go and just pull up all these different studies right you could pull up patients that have bad backs or patients with weak bones or, or connect this and connect that right now i think the only way you logically could connect the crimes being done by the u.s medical system would be to go hospital to hospital right see how see how complicated this would become um so yeah, I mean that—that's what got Tavistock was those records. Somebody was able to get into that database and find and start start connect some dots. So that—that's how that's how this whole game has been played. They just don't do the studies. It, 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 the, the amazing part is, 
that's why I always go back to the beginning of how these things happen, how they got started, what's going on, because it's always like some amazingly innocuous little deal going, right? Something that no one's really paying attention to, and it always backs up what I keep saying. Evil has to come package as help. They sell us on this stuff, and then we go, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. And what we have refused to or not bothered to acknowledge is the everlasting implications of what these things really mean, right? And I think it has to do with us being disconnected of the society. We see people over there as the others. As long as they're shooting the others, as long as the others' babies are getting destroyed and stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to calculate to people's brains. It, it seems to be that a lot of people feel like, well, you know, I've never gotten poor, or I never had that disease, so until it impacts me, and then, then they, then they begin to behave like their hair is on fire, right? So I think it has to do with our, our connection as humanity, and I will certainly stop talking about that, because remember, we have each other, so let's reach out to each other and, you know, put aside some time just to spend in silence for yourself. None of this has to be fearful. It's information. Use it for, for the benefit that it can have. I hopefully, I hopefully means that it will use it to feel, feel toward others in humanity. You don't know who else is suffering, possibly, from radiation, right? They may be acting a little bit funny or something. They may be acting this way because they served in the military and they came back and everybody's acting like, what's wrong with you, right? And they're suffering from all these implications of radiation. So look with kindness on each other because we don't know, you know, we don't know was this person in, in, a victim of these, um, the kids they drove around, all those, um, the orphan orphan kids. You know, we, we're a trauma-based society at this point. So if somebody isn't a psychopath, give, give them a fair break because... People have, well, been leading pretty complicated lives in silence because even if you were a soldier and you knew for a fact that you got this from the radiation and stuff, imagine, just imagine what it would be like for the whole world to say, yeah, you're crazy, you're crazy, or you deserve to have that happen. So maybe when we have those thoughts toward each other for whatever time we have remaining here, maybe we just do a little bit of adjustment on those thoughts. That's all I'm suggesting, all I'm suggesting. So in any regard, be safe out there and goodbye for now.